Well, so far in John's Gospel, in chapter 1, we've seen this repeated phrase, which is this phrase of come and see. Throughout John's Gospel, which we've been discussing the theme of the entire Gospel, is to find life in God through Jesus Christ. And so John opens with this invitation, come to me, come and see. Jesus says, follow me. And so what happens this week with this scene in the wedding at Cana, which is a very interesting scene as we get into it and kind of unpack the context of it, we'll see that John at this point is saying, Jesus has again and again invited you to come and see, to see him, to come to him, to follow him. But first, before you can do that, there's something that often will hold us back from actually fully and completely coming to Jesus. Something that will fully and completely keep us from coming to Jesus and then also being able to come and live lives, fellowshipping with one another, really truly knowing one another. The issue is that often we believe that there's a stain in our lives that is so deep on our souls that Jesus actually, that invitation is for everyone else but not really for me. There was, uh, when my wife and I bought our house two years ago here, uh, there was one thing that we knew we would do. We had been saving up for years, I, I, and I wanted it. Like, as a husband, I was like, we, we've always, like, lived in condos and in and, and tiny apartments where there's just not room. My wife loves to cook, and, and she loves, uh, she just loves baking and all that kind of stuff. And so um, she had always dreamed of getting quartz countertops, right? Like, okay, guys in college, that's like really nice, okay? We're like, what, <laughs> what is this? Um, uh, and so uh, very nice high-end countertops. And so we eventually, about a year ago, we, we finally got them. We had saved up for a while. And so they're installed. And, and so we had to sit the kids down because they're white countertops. They're beautiful, right? And so as soon as we look at the countertops, and then the three little children come in, right? And we look at them, we're like, this is beautiful. Then the three children come in. And then we realize... We must protect the countertops, right? So uh, my, we sit the kids down and we're like, listen, uh, there are a few rules about the countertops. One of them, the biggest rule is you cannot bring permanent markers around the countertops. You cannot bring permanent. Like, in fact, I was like, you know what? In fact, don't even look at the countertops. If you look at the countertops, you're going to get in trouble, right? Like, don't, don't even look at them, right? And so we, we over and over, let's get, okay, so we got all the markers away from the counter, right? Like, and, and, and so, uh, and so it was going well, and then early one morning, I, I get up, and I'm having my quiet time, and I'm at the counter on this stool, and, and you know, I'm just meeting with the Lord, and, uh, and, and I wanted to kind of doodle, like draw out this a chart. I, I like to, my mind works with pictures, and, and as I'm drawing, I, I usually use all erasable pens, <clears throat> so I use multiple colors, erasable pens, I geek out and tell you about that for hours. Um, so that's all I use. Well, this morning, though, uh, I had sitting there in my backpack a permanent, like one of those permanent big markers that can, and I was like, I want this to be thicker. And I was like, well, I'm not a child. Uh, I will write on the page, right? So I draw my diagram right on the page, and, and I get done with it, and I'm like, wow, that looks good. And I go to fold it up, and then I put it into, kind of insert it in a put it there, and then I look over. And I see what looks like a lot of my chart on the countertop. <laughs> the marker had bled right through. 
And so I immediately, I was like, you know, it's one of those where I was like, I was like, <gasps> and so I grab, I go to the sink and I grab water and like a Brillo pad and I start scrubbing as hard as I can and it only gets worse, right? Because it just like smudges everywhere. So now it just looks like this huge dark shadow on the countertop. And I was like, I told those children, what have they done, right? Like I was like, do I blame the children? Do I blame them? And I was like, you're a pastor, right? And so, and so eventually then I'm scrubbing and I'm scrubbing and I'm scrubbing and it's not going anywhere. And then as I'm scrubbing, I hear Lauren come in from across like in the living room and she's like, what are you doing? And I was like, nothing, <laughs> nothing, honey. And I'm like drying it with my, I have a robe on, so I'm like drying it. And then I like just put my Bible on top of it and I'm just like, like praying like, Lord, give me wisdom <laughs> how to navigate this. Uh, bring me a child to blame. So, and eventually Lauren was able to actually, she let me sit in it for a few days and feel horribly bad. And then she, apparently there's some kind of magic eraser that she found where she was able to remove it, but she thought it was really funny uh, to watch me sweat it for a while. And um, I was like, oh, nicer us. And, and here's the thing, that thing, whatever it is, we spend our life in various ways trying to just scrub, 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 saying busy, 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 as we'll see doing whatever we can to just clean it and clean it and clean it so that everyone around us, wow, wow that person, look, look how clean they are. Look how pure they are. Look how put together they are. But deep down, we're frantic because we're just trying to constantly scrub it. And then when somebody says, hey, what's that? Then what we do is we just try to just cover it up and just pray it goes away or no one will ever find it. That's exactly the dynamic that John is going to be addressing today. Because see, again and again, Jesus has been saying, come to see, follow me. And there's something in us that says, Jesus, I, I, I get it, I'll, I'll come to you. But there's something that holds us back. We go, but there's something that stains me that's so deep down that even you, Jesus, you can't remove it. And it keeps us from fully and completely coming to him. And it affects our relationships with one another. And so that's what John wants to address today. He says, I want you to be able to come to him completely. But before you come to him, you have to see how it is possible that he actually does remove whatever that stain is. Completely. So you can come to him and you can come to him not with this thing in the back of your mind that it's like, when I come to Jesus, I'm just going to be re rejected and scorned and shamed, like I've been in so many other areas of life. But how can we come to him and he really deals with the stain? Not just some sentimental, oh, Jesus will just be warm and fuzzy, but you go, there's really a stain there. How is it possible? That's what John's going to address today. First, just two points. Uh, and by the way, what John's going to do with this, well, Jesus, John just captures it, is this, this is going to act somewhat like a, scholars call it an enacted parable. Um, I'm, I'm going to call it a live action parable, right? Uh, this is kind of, a, it's a live action, like a parable that's happening that actually is like happening. It's not just kind of a, like a story that Jesus ha is making up or an illustration. It's actually happening historically, and Jesus is kind of conducting it in such a way to make a point. And so John's going to capture this live-action parable, and it's going to show us how it's possible that Jesus removes the stain so that we can fully come to him and experience his grace and life in him. First, how are stains? done to us, whatever that stain is, Lord, the stigma that it's given socially, whatever deficiencies we sense we have, 
Lord, that when we think they make us too far gone, even perhaps, Lord, all we've experienced is either just a, a fear of never having just constantly bearing it, never having shared it, or when we did share it, we were just met with shame and scorn and rejection. Lord, pray that this morning we would see truly how you address the stain within each of us. And then still me, follow me, know me, have life and freedom and grace and joy. Would you give us this spirit? Would you do that work through your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's an interesting, this whole passage in verses 1 through 5 is, is, is rather interesting because we have uh, this wedding that's in Cana and, and, and then Jesus' mother is going to come to him and ask for him to, like, she's like, hey, we're at a wine, and it's like, what's going on there? And then Jesus, you know, dresses her woman. We'll get to that. I don't know about you, but if I dress my mama that way, uh, I get slapped, right? So, <laughs> uh, and so we're going to talk about what's going on, the context there. Uh, and then after this whole thing where Jesus says, listen, I'm not going I'm to do anything about this wine at this wedding, but then afterwards, Jesus does do something about it. So, so what's going on? And I think as you get into the text, so here's one thing, um, a little bit of like when you're reading your Bible, uh, the chapter and verse numbers weren't added until later. The chapters weren't added into what? The Latin version of the Bible, like 4th century, uh, or maybe the 10th century version. And then the, the verses weren't added in until the 16th century. So originally, the, the Word of God just flows from, from one word to the next. There weren't kind of these breakdowns. And so you also didn't have this hard break from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Okay, so we have to kind of get away from that. But also when we're reading, it's helpful to understand two contexts. So if a, if a Bible is ever kind of, uh, in, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's baffling you. You're not sure how, how to make heads or tails of a, of a text or something that you're reading. One of the, you want to step back and go, okay, well, let's let the text really, let's make sure I'm getting the whole context Okay, here. And so two contexts are going to help us kind of get in and I think feel out where this, the emphasis of the text. The first is just the, the context of the text. Like what's come right before it? What's coming after it? Like what, what is the text? What's going on around the text? Context just means with text. So what's with this episode here? So historically, in order to understand, so first, the, the text, the, the verse one, on the third day, stop there. Okay, now, uh, one, when I say on the third day, when you read that as a Christian, immediately you think of the resurrection, right? Like everyone knows on the third day, Jesus rose again, he walked out of the grave, and we're going to hold on to that, but right now, what's interesting is that John not only is here saying the third day, but John has been giving us markers ever since chapter 1. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 29, you're going to see after on the first day, and this is setting up the narrative from the beginning when John started the narrative, there's verse 19 through 28 where there's a first day, then look at 29, <clears throat> the next day, second day, then 35, the next day, 43, the next day. And then, three days later. 
Now, if you add those up, and John doesn't clue us into actual day markers like a lot of authors do, this is unique. And what John's doing, remember, in the beginning of the gospel, he refers to Jesus and is talking about him from the beginning of creation. And what John does immediately when he gets into his narrative is he starts talking about something has come, something has changed, and this one that I'm talking about, Jesus, he's the one who's bringing about the change. And you know how that it's actually going to What I'm going to do is I'm going to happened to restore significance. The previous episode here we talked about last week was with Nathaniel. And guess where Nathaniel's from? Cana. In other words, and here's the irony. If you remember, this was from his hometown, right? Remember he said, oh, does anything good come out of Nazareth? He's like dog in Jesus' hometown, right? Like I made fun of Gary and Diana last week. I got a few phone calls. And so this week I'll make fun of, I'll say, uh, it's like if, if somebody said, you know, somebody out of Lawrence, Kansas, right? There. My wife was like, you should have picked the art rival. I was like, yes. Uh, so out of Lawrence, Kansas, nothing good comes out of Lawrence, Kansas, right? And then actually what Jesus does is he's like, really? He goes to Lawrence, Kansas, and then he goes there and he starts his ministry and goes, actually, I'm going to first do the f- in your hometown, Nathaniel, right? So there's this dramatic reversal where now he's coming into Nathaniel's hometown going, actually, I'm going to demonstrate my glory here, But what that does, too, is it actually connects, all these things connect this episode to the previous episode. And that's why I say that it flows out of this constant invitation that's in the first chapter of John, which is, come and see, come and see, follow me. It's this picture of Jesus standing there going, come to me, come to me. And I realized last week, afterwards, that we miss some of that dynamic because that picture of follow me, of literally walk with me, when, when there's all this imagery about creation and there's all this imagery about kind of getting back to that reality and restoring the relationship between God and humanity, it's a picture, just like in the garden, of God walking with his people. Jesus is inviting us back to that reality. We're meant to know God, to be in relationship with him. Jesus is saying, I'm going to restore that. Come to me, walk with me, experience that reality anew. And what happens when Jesus calls us to follow him is there, there are one of two things I think that happen. One is that either we say, I'm actually, I'm holding on to, I don't want to let go of whatever I'm, I've, I've latched on to, so I'm not going to come to you because I've got this. And we looked at last week, that thing that you're holding on to, that you say, I'm, I'm not going to let go of this. I'm not going to follow you, Jesus, because this is actually where I find life. This is where I find joy and peace and security. And that's the thing, what we looked at last week, where you try to create heaven on earth. And it ultimately fails you. But then on the other side, I think what John is getting at here is that sometimes, even though we turn and we go, I want to come to you, Jesus. I want to I know you. But as soon as you start moving towards him, those voices to your head. Do you really think he wants you? Yes, this is an invitation for humanity. It's an invitation for for people. But really that invitation is for people to know how to scrub and fix things.
again, what John is saying and Jesus is saying here is I want to make clear how you can know me. And so what Jesus says at the end of chapter one is he says, Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than these. And this is one of the greater things immediately that happens. Because he says, this is the way you can truly fully come to me and that stain can be removed. So going on, so that's some of the narrative context. But then let's get into some of the cultural context here. Last part of verse 1, and the mother of Jesus was there. I'll just point out here that it's emphasizing the mother of Jesus, Mary, that she's there. And I think what John's doing here is he's saying, watch her. Mary's here, the mother of Jesus. Verse 2, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. I just have to point out here, I think it's hilarious that Jesus is their plus one, right? Can you imagine going to a wedding? Oh, who's your plus one? And I'm like, the son of God, right? <laughs> like, your buddy, and you're like, it's right? Like, the, Jesus is their, they, they, most likely it's because this is actually, uh, this wedding is around somebody who's probably either a family member or it, within the family, socially very connected. They have no wine, Jesus. So what's going on here? A, a, a little a, a difference in weddings in the first century. So our weddings are like an afternoon or an evening. Uh, their weddings were about five to seven days long. Okay. So big, big social affair. And with just like our weddings, there were a lot of, there was a lot of social etiquette, a lot of social kind of conventions, there were a lot of expectations that came with weddings and how you would put on a wedding. This was very much a coming of age. This was very much families coming together. You've heard of that before, like medieval times where it's like kingdoms come together. There are all kinds of things that are bound up in this. First century marriages were not just because like people fell in love, you know, at a coffee shop. And so they got married. Like there was, there was a lot that was behind this that had to do with their identity and their social standing. And so in other words, what would happen is your social standing could go up or down depending on how you ran the wedding. And one of the ways, one of the really quick ways to absolutely destroy your social standing was to run out of wine. We don't know if this is the first day, second day, third day, when this is, but obviously it's enough time that they've run out of wine really quickly. It says there's something that you, you don't have it together. You, you don't make enough. You don't provide enough. You're too lazy. And here's the key. That would have been the social stigma that would have been put on the groom, but it also, because Jesus' family is connected to them, it would have been their stigma as well. See, most likely Mary, this is why Mary is actually helping, is because Mary is part of the family and she's helping coordinate this entire thing. And if it stains the groom, it stains them. And that's the quiet urgency that Mary comes to Jesus with. They have no wine. Jesus, they have no wine. 
the implied behind that. See, we read that, and that's what's happening on the surface. But what's implied in there, Mary is saying, Jesus, do you know what they're going to say about us? Jesus, do you know what this is going to do to our reputation? Do you know what everyone's going to think about us? If they run out of wine, do you realize how much this matters? Now, why does Jesus or Mary go to Jesus? Well, here's the thing also contextually. Probably because at this point, not because she thinks he'll turn the water into wine. Remember, at this point, this is the first miracle that Jesus is going to do. So it's not like they've seen Jesus walking around turning water into wine. It's not like, you know, there's texts where Jesus is just walking through the desert and they're like, oh, I'm thirsty. And he's like, cha-ching, right? And they're like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Like, he's like, don't drink too much. You'll get dehydrated. Seriously, drink some water. But... What's happening here, they haven't done any signs. So what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, or Mary's coming to him. She's not expecting that, but what's she doing here? She's going to Jesus because by this point, Jesus is the firstborn son and Joseph is already dead. And so Mary's coming to Jesus because she expects, you're the one who I'm, I'm dependent on. You're the head male in our family. You've got to provide wine. Or else we're all going down and we'll all be stained by this. And that sets up Jesus' response. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Again, like I said, when we hear that woman, right, we read it like woman, right? <laughs> and I first read it, I'm like, Jesus, this is your, this is your mama, right? Like, like if I, I mean, I'm, I'm serious. Like if I'd ever gone up to my mother and I was like, woman, right, I would still be running today, right? <laughs> And so, but here's the thing, in the context, this is actually more like the term ma'am. So like the southern term of ma'am. Like it has more of that cultural feel. And so what's happening here is it's not belittling, but it is graciously firm. It is graciously firm. It's appropriate because Jesus is about ready to make a key point. Because he asked, what does this have to do with me? And I, I pondered this for a while, like what, what is Jesus asking there? What's he mean by that? And I realize I have to answer the this he's referring to. What does this, Mary, mother, woman, what does this, all of these dynamics, all these social expectations, all these concerns and anxiety about what this is going to mean about us and what people are going to say about us, and all the expectations that if you would just scrub and scrub and scrub the tables, because remember, Mary, imagine all the insecurities that she's probably filled with. She's a widow. She's the one who had a son out of wedlock. And now that husband who was there to say, no, she was faithful, she was good, he's gone. Can you imagine the stigma she's living with? And what Jesus knows is going on here is the exact same thing that often goes on in our lives, which is we're driven through all the things around us to say, if you want to remove that shame... If you really want to feel like someone, if you want to feel good, if you want to feel clean, if you don't want to feel dirty anymore, if you don't want to feel stained anymore, if you want that removed, then get busy. And every generation has different convention, or conventions in how we do this. Etiquette and, and things that if we do it, then everyone will go, oh, they're good. And what Jesus knows is he's saying, listen, you've... You're trying to deal with this on a social level, but I didn't come to deal with that stain on a social level. I came to deal with that stain on a soul level. And once and for all, and he probably knows when he's looking at Mary, he's going, you're 
driven. So what happens is we have this sense of this stain and this shame in our lives. And what happens is we can't just come to Jesus as he is. And our lives are driven, constantly running around, trying to just scrub that stain out, being busy, proving ourselves. The stains drive our lives. I mean, easy example, like tonight, right? Super Bowl parties. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't go there. Uh, but right, like we have people over, and then what do we do? It's like you, you end up being all stressed out because you're like, man, if everything isn't put together, if my children don't walk around like singing hymns, right? <laughs> like little angels. I love my Father in heaven. See, those are my children. Reflect well on me, right? Everything's clean. <laughs> the food is perfect, right? You don't yell at the TV when the bangles, when somebody fumbles, right? Those things happen, and what happens is that's all because there's something within us from different vantage points. What's happening there? Because there's something that we're trying to deal with, either clean up or cover up. And we try to do it by showing we, we throw a good party. We, we're the one who's got it all together. I'm the one who can provide, whatever it is. That's just a Super Bowl example. Think of how we do it with our careers, how we do it with our parenting, how we do it with how we post on social media. You can say our whole society is driven by this. The stains, they tend to drive us, and what Jesus recognizes is how it's driving Mary, and he's saying, and that's why he says, I'm not going to just cleanse you and deal with that stain by getting the wine and covering up this whole social faux pas. That's the surface level. He recognizes in Mary, he's saying, I want to heal you from this so it doesn't drive your life so frantically in everything you're doing where it robs you of joy. Where yes, if you're serving at a wedding, you're doing it with joy, but not because you're just frantically hoping that no one notices what's on the table you're scrubbing. And so that's why Jesus says what he says next, which then is, my hour has not yet come. Notice the flow there. What does this have to do with me? My, my hour has not yet come. In the Gospels, this is always a reference to the cross to the cross, and what Jesus is saying is, I've come to set you free from constantly, frantically scrubbing away your shame by bearing your shame and being scourged in your place. I've come for the hour when I will take the shame of sin upon me and that mark, that stain, and I will deal with it once and for all. Jesus doesn't just say, ah, it's not a big deal, and belittle it, and here's the thing. You know it's serious because when somebody sins against you. That's when you should really think about how you judge sin. Not just when we want to explain away our own, but we realize how serious it is when it's done to us. And Jesus says, it's very serious, and I will deal with it. There's a reason why it drives you at such a primal level. And Jesus says, I want to wash you. I want to remove that stain. And then what he does next shows us how. So the counterintuitive cleansing. Mary responds in verse 5 with what seems disconnected from Jesus' response on the, on the first reading of it. 
right? So he says this, and she's like, she turns to the servant, and she's like, well, do whatever he tells you, right? Now, when you read that, you're like, what, how, where, why is she going there? If Jesus said, I'm not going to do this, is she just, is this like condescension? It's like, man, Jesus and Mary, do they need some counseling? Like, <laughs> like, what's going on here? Well, if you follow from the fact that Mary assumes Jesus, remember, she's not hearing this on the plane. She doesn't know Jesus is referring to the cross. She doesn't know Jesus is going to turn water into wine. She's, she just knows this is playing out in real time. And so as this is happening, she just assumes, give it some time and you'll feel the social pressure. Maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's the next day at the wedding, but eventually, servants, do what he tells you because now it's on him, right? And so she thinks eventually he'll cave to the social pressure and then he'll act. And it's interesting because even though Jesus said this has nothing to do with me, he does act and he does do something about the wine. It's interesting, it's like, why did Jesus then all of a sudden do something? And we were actually talking about this. We have a teaching team, some of us who are teaching. They brought up a good point, which is Jesus also probably in the midst of it, he's having this. It's not like Jesus went to the wedding at Cana, and he's like, and then Mary's going to come to me and do this, and then I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to, when they walk away, then there's going to be stone basins, and then I'm going to make it into wine, and then I'm going to amaze everyone, and everyone's going to see my glory, and then they're going to believe, right? But Jesus isn't like, that's not how Jesus is like waking up and like looking at his Google calendar, and it's like, yes, this is the will, and how we'll play like what's happening, this is happening in real time and Jesus is walking in the spirit and Jesus is saying, he's seeing this around him and he's burdened in his heart and going, I don't want, it's not just Mary, it's everyone here. All of humanity. I think that's why actually he refers to partially as woman. He's saying all of humanity, ever since Eve fell, everyone is just completely enslaved to this reality and their lives are driven from it and not from a place of joy. And I want them to have joy. And he senses the spirit within him as he's contemplating this going, show them, show them how it's possible. And so Jesus then steps forward. Verse 6. Now there were stone, six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. In the Old Testament, uh, God gave his people what were called cleanliness laws or rituals, most associated with the book of Leviticus. And these were especially for holy occasions. And so you would clean all the utensils. This was for sacrifices. This was for, uh, for just holy occasions like weddings and gathering just together to worship. It would be for if they're going to war, and they would clean. And so essentially what these are, these six stone jars, and they would actually hold about 150 total gallons of water. And so they're about a third of the way full. And so they were uh, sitting there, and they were stone versus ceramic because stone wouldn't you know, get, uh, have as many issues with bacteria growing in them. And so they were around at the entrance, and you can think of these like port the sinks. Like they were there and people would come in and they would wash their hands in this water and then they would also be washing all the dishes throughout the day in the washes. So think dishwater at this point. <laughs> and so at this point, this is dishwater and it was more than etiquette though. It was a way for them as they came in, as Israelites, to acknowledge we, we're coming into something holy. We're coming into something transcendent that's happening here in a marriage that God has set apart. And there's something in us that's acknowledging the stain and acknowledging their need to be washed and made pure. It was a picture of this inward reality, an outward picture of an inward reality. But in, but at this, and that's why the cleanliness laws were merely symbolic. And they knew that. They never could wash away their actual guilt or sin. 
In fact, throughout the Old Testament, this was acknowledged, and the prophets told of a day when God would fully clean his people. And that's exactly what Jesus does with this parable. Verse 7. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. Now, what's the significance there? The significance there is probably that Jesus is saying, fill them to the brim because I'm going to fulfill. What all those cleansing rituals were meant to point to, I'm going to fulfill it. The time for scrubbing yourself is done. Verse 8 through 10 then. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So by the way, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So it'd be a master of feast, like a master of ceremonies, right? Maybe like almost think like the best man or somebody, the, the father of the bride is what we have nowadays, where it's like somebody who's kind of like in charge of the whole thing. They're like the MC. There we go. They're like the MC for the whole thing. And you're, they're the guy who's running everything. And so they bring it to him. And, and he tastes it, and he says, he's going to go, this is amazing. And so they've drawn out, which I love that picture there, of just drawing right out what used to be dishwater. <laughs> Don't, that's why they didn't tell him what had happened, right? By the way, this was dishwater, but now it's wine. It's like, you can keep your vintage, right? No, they're... They don't tell them, and so he drinks it, and then he says, everyone serves the good wine first. He goes to the groom. And when people have drunk freely... In other words, they drank a bit much. Then the poor wine, they can't tell anymore. Or their palate is just so saturated with wine, they can't even tell anymore. But you have kept the good wine until now. You've kept the good wine until now. So what's Jesus saying with these actions? What he's saying is that the time for constantly washing yourself and scrubbing yourself in the old way of using all of the worldly conventions and trying to make yourself clean and just constantly having to clean yourself and clean yourself and scrubbing yourself and scrubbing yourself. That was a grace. It did point to a reality that, yes, you have a stain, as John 1 says, but there is a greater grace that I've brought. And it's not only going to fulfill it, but it's going to utterly transform it into something better. Something that isn't your life, running around anxiously trying to clean yourself, wondering if you've, you've corrected that balance that's off between you and God, but instead have joy and freedom of knowing you were washed and made pure. And that's the glory that the disciples see in verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him. A few weeks ago, I talked about this. This is very significant. This is the first time, this is almost like a formula in John's gospel. They see signs, Jesus as a sign. They see his glory in the sign. And when they see glory, they believe. It's going to be again and again. I think it's seven times. And what happens, what's interesting, is there's a culmination after the first 12 chapters. And a culmination in chapter 13. When after they've seen his glory and they believe because you might be saying, what's the, what's the connection between washing and then wine? 
Jesus in chapter 13 is, what's he going to do? As soon as the Father says, it's complete now. Your work, it's, it's, it's fulfilled. What happens? He gives him all authority in heaven and on earth. And what Jesus does, next action, leader of the universe, is he gets down and takes the form of a servant. And what does he do? He washes their feet. Peter says, don't wash my feet. You can't wash me. I got to get busy, Jesus. I got to clean myself up, Jesus. You can't clean me. And he says, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. How? How will you wash us, Jesus? It says, then once he had explained these things to them, what's he do? Communion. And he holds up a cup filled with wine. And he says, this is my body for you. Though you, especially you, Judas, though you betray me, this is my blood. And the way I will wash you is I will wash you with my blood. He's saying the wine is my blood. It looks back and it, you see in communion how it's, the penalty of sin is removed. My body was broken, my blood shed for you. So you might be covered by the blood of the lamb, that you might walk through judgment just as they did in the Exodus. And my blood would wash you, it would cover you. That whatever stain you have, that it would remove that stain. And that not only that, though, but also then I give it to you in a meal because I'm inviting you, come to me, know me, follow me. Don't be scrubbing all around the tables, but instead, here at a wedding, Jesus is saying, come, sit with me, dine with me, know me. I'll provide the wine. I'll provide the life. I'll provide the grace. Don't worry about the stains. I've taken care of that. I've invited you to commune with me. And then it also points forward to one day when our groom will break out the good wine the wine that is perfectly aged for the history of redemption, perfectly aged so that it's ready for his bride and he'll invite us in and we won't just have a little bit, but we will have an entire feast. Jesus is saying, I wash you with my blood. Now notice something ironic though. I kept thinking like cleansing and then wine, cleansing and wine. You know why I couldn't connect them? Because I was like, wine is the last thing. Here's the thing. I don't know much. My wife won't even let me learn it. Like when I ask her, how do I do laundry? She's like, don't touch it. You'll break it. So when, but here's what I do know, even though that's my state. The last thing I'm going to wash a stain out with is wine. Is wine. The last thing I'm going to wash anything out with is blood. There's nothing that stains more than blood. There's nothing that stains more than wine. So why? It's counterintuitive what Jesus is saying here. What he's saying is, yes, we look at the stain of our sin, what's been done to us, what we've done to others, and we see it cannot be removed. There's, it's impossible. And what he says is, yes, you're right. And so what he does is on when his hour came, when his hour had finally come, he was strung up on a cross and he was bloodied and he was beaten and he shed blood because sin equals death. It equals blood. That's why when we're sinned against, we demand blood. That's why we go through life hating ourselves, just wanting blood from ourselves, shedding our entire lives to try to save ourselves. And Jesus says, I will, I take your sin seriously, and I will dip you in my blood because it is a pure blood. Do you see the stain anymore? No, you only see my blood Then on a third day, a different third day, after he shed his blood, he walks out of a tomb, and that's why he's described as now being radiant in white. 
And what Jesus says when he, all the gospels, when he comes out, is he calls their names and he invites them to him. He says, hello, greetings, welcome, come to me, follow me, come to me. Because now, whatever it was as you stood around the cross and you rejected me, whatever it was that you betrayed me, whatever it was that you gave yourself over to something and you've got this deep stain, I'm telling you, it's in that grave and you now can come to me and be clean. doesn't want you to live your life driven by constantly trying to measure up, constantly trying to prove yourself. And he's saying the stain is gone. It is washed away. Trust me. Good. That's the first step. You know you have a stain, but the second step is not just to wallow and hate yourself and try to kill yourself and shed your own blood to pay for your sin. It won't work. There isn't enough. What you need instead is my blood, and I will give you my grace. Come to me. Find life in me. Let me ask, are you willing to die to your attempts to scrub away the stain? We're landing the plane here. I'm almost done. But I fear that oftentimes the reason why we don't come to Jesus is not, we say, oh, it's not because I I don't believe, but it's because we're so busy actually trying to save ourselves. And it's driven by this deep sense of shame. This morning, the drop-off point is just that question. Are there places where right now you are trying to scrub, 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 and all you find is again and again, it's just more and more smeared and blurred and almost worse. Jesus is saying, I have an invitation for you. I once... uh, I heard recently of a wedding, and I loved how they, the bride and groom decided to do this. The bride was bringing a lot of shame into the wedding and wasn't sure if she's worthy of her groom. Won't go into all the details. So what they decided to do was during the wedding, to capture that without telling everyone, but to capture this, was as she walked down the aisle robed or dressed in white, the groom actually, when she got halfway down, she stopped. And then the groom at that point ran down the aisle to her. And I think what they were trying to offer there was a picture of what all of us feel, which is when we're going through life, what happens is we encounter Jesus and he's standing there at the altar, our groom, and he's saying, come to me, make a life with me, know me forever. And we see him from far off and it seems like he will stay far off because you don't understand Jesus. Who who am I to walk this aisle? Who am I to come to you? And there's something true about it, and there's voices all around us in the crowd that are telling us the same thing. But what Jesus does is he says, you can come to me because I've already come for you. Jesus ran into the world for the joy set before him, Hebrews says. He scorned the shame of the cross. He scorned the stain. He took it upon himself, and he runs to you, and he takes your hands. When you say, "I, I can't, I can't come to you, what he says is, follow me. He said, I can't. You realize my filth. And he says, look down and you realize how radiant white you are. And see, (laughs) Anthem, what John is saying and what the rest of this gospel is going to capture is that following Jesus is like then when they walk from that point to the altar. That's the journey of life. Of knowing that Jesus came for you and when you were reluctant, he said, no, it is really, I really can remove your sin and there's nothing you can do but I will remove that stain and you will be white as snow and I will make you mine and now we are going to walk together, follow me.
and the day, until the day when you enter fully my kingdom or I return again. And I will make a home with you. And see what Jesus is saying is he's setting up saying one day you can come to me, you can follow me and you can walk with me and you can know me. So stop trying to scrub the stains. Come to me. Because it is true that one day you're going to see that I've saved the best wine for last. It only gets better and better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, that as we think about the stains of our sin, Lord, there's so much shame that we sense and feel. And, and we, we wonder, Lord, when we go around this world, we try to find so many ways to cleanse ourselves, to scrub it, to cover it up. And Lord, again and again, we find ourselves just back, trying to scrub it, not believing. Jesus, would your word break through spirit? Would you land the words of Jesus? Come to me, follow me, know me. I've come for you. You can come to me. And so, Spirit, would you, whatever in each of our hearts, whatever it is that's going on, Lord, in each of our souls, would we hear that voice right now of Christ saying, come to me, walk with me. In Jesus' name, amen.